This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. How about that New York Times headline today? Biden co-ops anti-war slogan to perpetuate war. Incredible. I couldn't believe that that was the headline in the New York Times. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it is time to end the forever war, which is Joe, what Joe Biden said yesterday, President Biden said yesterday, that he's ending the forever war. Apparently, he thinks the Afghanistan war is the only part of the forever war, not the many other ongoing wars the United States is engaged in, certainly not the war footing that the United States has been on since, I don't know, Pearl Harbor and the continuation of the Cold War, even though the Soviet Union fell. So thanks, President Biden, for co-opting another thought from the left and obfuscating the larger issue. Really appreciate it. Good Lord. Bill Gates is a monster, and so are all of the big pharma executives who are his neighbors on some demented monster island of greed even during a pandemic. They refused to loosen intellectual property rights during the virus, a process the world was working toward, and would have led to a far more responsible and effective response to the coronavirus. Is it just me, or if the world is facing a pandemic that some epidemiologists, especially those who appeared here on This Is Hell when the outbreak began, were predicting it would kill at least a half a million people globally, you'd think you would try to get all those resources and researchers together to work on finding a vaccine, right? You know, that whole we're all in this together tripe they were feeding us a year ago when we were clearly not all in this together as the medicine monopoly was making plans to saving profits, not saving people. It all comes down to patents and the weaponization of innovation against the global south and a kind of neocolonialism that leads to massive inequalities and things like, I don't know, access to vaccines during a pandemic, maybe? And Bill Gates would rather protect intellectual property rights and patents than human lives, claiming patent rights, uh, intellectual property rights and patents are necessary for innovation when there is absolutely no evidence suggesting that. And the opposite seems to be quite true as open source research can and does and has led to far more innovations than patents can, which are often a dead end for innovation. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is supposedly about ending inequality, yet in its actions, It does nothing but drive inequality. Gates supports what he calls a free market in pharmaceuticals, but the one he enforces is a monopoly. We'll discuss the role Bill Gates has played in the poor response to the pandemic, free from his power that controls the media narrative, which dons him with a saintly halo. When we speak with freelance journalist Alexander Zajcik, who wrote the New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Yeesh. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. Maybe, possibly, producing Al- producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week been so far? Uh, it's pretty good. Should I this weekend watch uh, the 1974 film, uh, the Elliot Gold film, Busting? Because it's called Busting. Yeah. <laughs> it's got Elliot Gold in it, right? Gould in it, right? It's yeah. It's got to be good. <laughs> Gould kind of mood. You know, uh, the movie MASH does not age well. Oh, really? <laughs> no. It's really uh, racist and sexist, and yeah, it's got some real issues. So I watch Capricorn 1 instead? Yes. <laughs> That's a hilarious movie. <laughs> 
Today's the big day, Alex. The day after my girlfriend got her first dose, I'm getting my second, and the timing couldn't be better or worse to have someone on about pharmaceutical companies prioritizing <laughs> getting rich off the virus over saving lives. So really looking forward to standing in that line today, then getting injected, and the whole time thinking about what a monster Bill Gates and a big pharma are. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our This Is Hell merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And that's what Robert did last night. So, Robert, thank you so much for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff foils another dictatorship before it can start. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. This week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? This is not the media. This is hell. And if it was the media, you would likely not be hearing the conversation we're about to have because of the immense power of Bill Gates. Now, Gates has no power over us because we are completely listener-supported by you, our listening audience. We do not have advertisers. We do not take grant money. We are not beholden to anybody in any way except to you. And that's the way it should be. These still are the public's airwaves. And as long as we have access to streaming and podcast technology, all that's ours, too. And because we are solely concerned with doing whatever we can to gain a better understanding of the world instead of this cartoonish understanding of Bill Gates as Superman... We can actually have a discussion that is verboten in the establishment mainstream media and even the non-mainstream as Gates reaches significant and probably far larger than you think. So yes, this is not the media. This is hell. And because of it, coming up, Bill Gates and his goons in Big Pharma are all monsters. We'll also have Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth. More answers to the question from hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell since Bill Gates left Microsoft and started his allegedly charitable Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And throughout the pandemic, Bill Gates has been displayed in the media as the caring, giving philanthropist who does so much for the developing world in his seemingly one man and one woman fight against global poverty. Turns out, in reality, his support for the poor is mere crumbs. His actions actually cause poverty. And when it comes to the virus, the, that Gates and Bill, Big Pharma's response is not working out too well for the poor either. Here to give us a far more honest reckoning of Bill Gates, free from Gates' vast influence, freelance journalist Alexander Zajic wrote the New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alexander. Good to be here, Chuck. How you doing? Good. Alexander is the author of the 2016 book, the Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Trump's America, and 2010's Common Nonsense, Alexander's upcoming book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, From Aspirin to COVID-19, will be published by CounterPoint in 2022. You start by writing how the World Health Organization's February 2020 R&D blueprint in preparation for a world upended by the virus, then known as 2019 NCOV. You describe how the resulting document summarized the state of coronavirus research and proposed ways to accelerate the development of diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. The underlying premise was that the world would unite against the virus. The global research community would maintain broad and open channels of communication since collaboration and information sharing minimize duplication and 
accelerate discovery. The group also drew up plans for global comparative trials overseen by the World Health Organization to assess the merits of treatments and vaccines. So at the outset, you know, the cliche was we're all in this together. It was being repeated over and over again. Some, despite us all clearly not being in this together, some are still using that phrase. Were we ever all in this together? Or was that just a fantasy of the World Health Organization? Well, the industry, I think, never had any intention of willingly uh, changing the rules that have made it one of the most powerful industries uh, in world history. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Um, recent history shows us that their allied governments probably were not too keen on changing the rules either. They're sort of, um, you know, a tandem in, on this issue of intellectual property rights and pharmaceuticals. Um, but there was a space for sort of pushing them into line with uh, the consensus that was developing among um, public health experts and the research community that the rules should be suspended given the enormity of the crisis and the scale of uh, work that had to be done rather quickly to to get a handle on it. So there was, you know, a moment where it looked possible, sort of, um, you know, a space where that could have been seized and, and, and that future could have been built. Um, unfortunately, Gates moved very quickly to establish uh, an initiative, um, a whole architecture called the Act Accelerator, which basically pushed the conversation back onto a more familiar IPR paradigm of um, monopoly rights for uh, the pharmaceutical companies that were benefiting from these huge public subsidies. Um, and and here we are. Yeah, and you mentioned how the one, one issue not mentioned in the World Health Organization uh, paper was intellectual property. If the worst came to pass, the experts and researchers assumed cooperation would define the global response with the WHO playing a central role, that pharmaceutical companies and their allied governments would allow intellectual property concerns to slow things down from research and development to manufacturing scale up does not seem to have occurred to them. They were wrong, but they weren't alone. To you, what explains this level of betrayal by pharmaceuticals and their allied governments, and apparently a complete lack of outrage over both private interests and the state prioritizing money over humanity? The lack of outrage in the part of who? The, the public in general, the media. We don't yeah. see any talk about this. There's no discussion yeah. of intellectual property rights when it comes to the barriers that, that existed to do the research for the virus. Yeah, I mean, in the context of the pandemic, I think uh, it was uh, difficult to sort of get into the weeds. Everyone was terrified. Everyone was, you know, focused on the day to day, which is, is understandable. Um, nobody really knew what the hell was going on. And uh, everyone was focused on just getting some good news about vaccine research. And uh, Gates was able to present his bid for organizing that research and development and production in a way that sounded good. Um, you know, he promised equity. He said that, you know, we're going to round up down the edges of a of a system that's not always perfect. And I'm going to employ my enormous resources for um, benevolence and, um, you know, a equitable global solution. And who's, who's going to argue with that um, at that time? But, you know, the problem with Gates from the beginning has been um, there's there's been a hesitancy or unwillingness uh, in the media to sort of do the step back 
um, and and look at the philanthropic model that he represents in uh, the larger sort of system context that you alluded to earlier when you said we had a neo-colonial global pharmaceutical system, which we absolutely do, in which he effectively runs interference for, I think is is the is the conclusion that's very hard to um, avoid when you when you really look at it. But if the media was looking for good news, how much success was the World Health Organization before Gates interfered? How much success were they having through working together? Is there any evidence that had they continued cooperating, we would have had an effective vaccine sooner and have it distributed more widely than in the current situation? Why uh, not, I mean, and why not go after that good news story of this cooperative working together, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. The, the development side is a counterfactual. Um, who knows? But probably, um, you know, the the research, as, as we know, with the mRNA vaccines had already pretty much been done in the public sector. Uh, and those were come up with pretty quickly. Uh, one thing that would have certainly helped would have been the global comparative trials. Um, we might have figured out more about the problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example. Um, but instead, we ha- let the companies do their privatized trials where they basically contracted with um, these non-transparent um, companies that, that, that uh, for one, slowed things down by not having a um, representative enough um, base of participants. That was one problem. Um, so if you isolate the things they wanted to do and look at how it actually panned out, you can see, oh, wow. This actually could have been done better, absolutely. So there's not really a, a debate on that. Um, and in terms of manufacture, I don't think there's any question. I mean, we're, it has been such a disaster in terms of the supply side that that is just not debatable. I don't think anyone, even Gates, well, he is actually making that argument still. But it, it's it's so untenable that um, you know I don't think anyone at this point takes it seriously. While they were working together, this uh, World Health Organization COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, or CTEP, while that was going on, while they were working together, meanwhile, every U.S. TV network nightly news program had a segment called The Race for the Cure, and we're packaging it as a competition between nations to see who would find a cure first. During that time, I do not remember stories about cooperation, only this framing of competition. Was competition being promoted while cooperation was taking place? And if so, in your opinion, why does the media frame it as a race when the medical community at that time was not? Well, on the media point, I I don't think you can avoid reckoning with the fact that pharma is, you know, one of the biggest ad buyers, uh, if you're talking about television, um, you know, that there is. And then you've also got the fact that the race for the vaccine, quote unquote, kind of fed into the whole Russia narrative, uh, Russia, China. It was, you know, it fit into the sort of usual frames. Um, so there were lots of sort of incentives for TV to do what what TV does and, and for the mainstream media to, to do what it does and avoid the sort of um, more troubling questions that uh, challenge the status quo in all sorts of ways. But, yeah, there was absolutely no coverage of CTAP to speak of. Um, the pool was ready and waiting. Uh, you know, you had dozens of countries behind it. You had the director general at WHO behind it. You had, you know, Bill Gates is not the only public health expert in the world. Um, you know, he just happens to be the richest and the most powerful self-appointed one. But there were plenty of other experts, you know, just 
aghast that this was being allowed to lie fallow and get absolutely zero um, support from drug company governments or industry. When you were mentioning that uh, competition with Russia and China, you know, we've had a lot of foreign policy critics on our show who have said that the problem with U.S. foreign policy is that it's still stuck on a Cold War footing. And it sounds like from what you're saying that the media is very much stuck on a Cold War framing of all of the news issues that they cover. You think that's kind of the case? I do. And there's, there's actually a historical footnote here that, that I think is worth mentioning in terms of uh, the Cold War and that frame. When Jonas Salk invented polio uh, when he discovered the polio vaccine in 1955. Dwight Eisenhower delivered a speech the next day in which he promised to make all of the technology available with assistance to every country on earth, including the Soviet Union. This is 1955. This is even before the Khrushchev speech. I mean, this is like the darkest, (laughs) one of the darkest periods of the Cold War. And the United States understood the importance of both as a soft power ploy, but also just in terms of its role in the world and the idea of medicine as a in, in vaccines as a global public good, understood a responsibility to share it. And there was never a question of allowing the companies that were contracted to make the stuff controlling it. And they made money. They made a profit. Um, the five companies, including some of them that are still around today and that we know. Um, but you know, they were they were understood to be the junior partner in this relationship. And what we have now is a situation where basically they're running the show and the government is just absolutely devoid of any self-respect in terms of using its own technology and patents. I mean, it's just unbelievable that that our government is this pathetic. What what changed? I mean, look, here, we, we just had a presidency that got into power because it's about make America great again. And this nostalgic look back to the 50s is some great period in time. It was a great period in time when it came to distributing vaccines to the world when it came to uh, Salk's polio vaccine. So what the hell happened to the United States that all of a sudden now that's not a priority? We no longer feel that way, even when we're being nostalgic about that era as some great time for America. Yeah. I mean, the the two sort of stories there that you have to tell are the rise of pharma as a trillion dollar powerhouse industry with a lock on the government. Uh, It runs famously, it runs the richest lobbying shop in D.C. um, in Geneva. And that is a big part of it. And concurrently, you have its very effective leadership, quote unquote, in uh, globalizing the model that it established in the U.S. through the World Trade Organization. And that is uh, a very recent story. I think a lot of people, one of the things about this sort of shallow historical memory moment that we're in is we forget how new so much of this shit is. I mean, before the WTO, there was zero expectation or obligation on the part of any country on earth to respect any other country's um drug patents for the most part, and they and they didn't. Um, and that was forced upon the global south, basically, uh, by a very small number of um, executives, especially with Pfizer, they sort of led the charge, we're talking about like a dozen people um, in partnership with with uh, the US government, that basically drove home the, um, the intellectual property regime that we're dealing with right now. And 
um, you know, there, that was a fight that lasted a long, long time. Um, the, there was a rear guard battle that led by uh, India, Brazil, and uh, a lot of other large countries in the global south um, that finally they lost because, you know, the U.S. was at the peak of its post-Cold War power. And they basically said, look, if you want access to our markets, if you want development funds, you're going to sign on this dotted line. And they eventually did. And, you know, when you talk to the negotiators from these countries about those days, they inevitably pause and choke up <laughs> in either like grief or rage because they knew exactly what they were signing in 1994, uh, which went into effect the next year. And that was a death warrant for millions of people. And then, of course, with the global AIDS crisis, especially in Africa, five years later, that was borne out and anyone could have seen that coming and everyone did see it coming in fact. Um, and that was a huge, huge global uh, debate at the time. Remember battle in Seattle in uh, 1999, the WTO, that's what this was about. We were having the same conversation in the context of a different pandemic. And one of the things about 9-11 that was so tragic was it completely derailed all of that. And now we're having to sort of relearn this history and these lessons and go back to sort of the starting line. But, you know, there were people fighting in the streets and tear gas over this issue uh, not all that long ago because it's it's completely obscene. It's completely immoral. It's and it's it's dictated from above. It's um, it's not natural. There's nothing that says. Uh, you know, scientific knowledge should be or is a natural property, right? I mean, if anything, all the evidence points in the other direction. Um, you know, every argument you can think of that basically this is a system failure and it has not worked uh, in terms of access, in terms of incentivizing the needed R&D on uh, actual public health threats. But here we are thinking this is just like the state of things. And without this system, we're never going to have a new medicine again. And we're going to go back to the dark ages. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely absurd. And the the industry's ability to, uh, you know, continue this line and, 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 and sort of sell it is a testimony to the amount of money they have and their sort of messaging think tank network. It's been very effective. Uh, and also just a... a the disappearance of memory, I think, to, to a certain extent. And, and we need to go back and review the episodes that led to this. That gave me goosebumps because it reminded me of us covering the battle for Seattle back in 1999 and how the people we had on the show were saying this is exactly what was going to happen. This is a system of rising global inequality, and this is a system that is a new form of colonialism. Does intellectual property rights, does that change science into a weapon of colonialism? Uh, effectively, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to avoid precisely that conclusion because these the companies are mostly based in a handful of uh, Western countries, which are the richest countries in the world, which became that way through this enormous historical centuries-long wealth transfer. Um, which now takes different forms. And one of them is uh, intellectual property around um, different forms of knowledge monopolies, of which drugs is, is the most consequential. You write that by late May of last year in the launch of the WT, uh, WHO COVID-19 technology access pool, however, the optimism and sense of possibility that defined the early days were long gone. 
advocates for pooling and open science, who seemed ascendant and even unstoppable that winter, confronted the possibility they'd been outmatched and outmaneuvered by the most powerful man in global public health. And that person is Bill Gates. Gates' involvement in the quest to find a vaccine has been glorified by some with uh, an idea that he would actually find the cure himself, while others have gone so far as to believe Gates himself is behind the pandemic, actually causing the outbreak in some scheme to get rich. To you, what explains these kind of cartoonish caricatures taking hold in the popular discussion and debate, but not a discussion of intellectual property? Uh, well, I mean, the, the picture we have of Gates is very much a picture of his own creation. I mean, like the industry that, that he's aligned with, he spends an awful lot of time and money on image management. And in some sense, his whole second career in public health was this epic reputation laundering um, event. I mean, don't forget, before he shifted over in 2000, after stepping down from CEO he, of Microsoft, he was loathed, widely loathed as a ruthless monopolist, you know, being sued on two continents. So, you know, he has been very careful about making sure that uh, his um, obituary reads something else. And, you know, he spends a lot of money on it. I, I don't even really cover public health, but I can't tell you how many junkets I've had forwarded to me uh, for some Gates initiative. And a lot of people go on these junkets and a lot of journalists sort of, you know, are fatayed by him and buy into this benevolent philanthropy model that, um, you know, we've always kind of been susceptible to in this country, especially in elite media. Um, so, you know, it's by design, um, this picture that we have that's, that's false and, and, you know, going after intellectual property rights and, and really digging into it means going up against, you know, the most powerful, um, industries in the economy. And it's, uh, it's not, you know, sexy, uh, or fun. And it seems like a lot more difficult than, um, you know, some other <laughs> things you can write about. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you, but it, it's definitely something that we cannot avoid much longer. And especially in an age of pandemics, I mean, it's it's essential to the future of the species because this is not the last pandemic. It may not even be the last pandemic of the decade. And we have got to get past this if we are going to really be able to deal with this new world um, that we're entering. So why is Gates so motivated to protect intellectual property rights? I understand that from your uh, in your writing, how he believes that intellectual property rights actually leads to innovation. So does uh, IP lead to innovation? Uh, that has been the industry line for I mean, they really started pumping that in the 70s. Uh, and they would have us believe that it's the only possible incentive to um, come up with new drugs. There are any number of models that can incentivize new drugs. And we know this because industry even uses them. They have prize money competition. They have, um, you know, other countries have different systems. We have a public sector that is extremely innovative uh, in which intellectual property rights are secondary because most of the breakthroughs are coming in the basic research level. So yes, I mean, there's all sorts of things we can do. And you can even go back before 
patent systems existed. I mean, th again, this is relatively new. Most of Europe did not have a patent system until late in the 19th century, and they didn't have drug patents until the 1970s. Like, never mind the WTO, Spain and um, you know the Netherlands, they did not have drug patents until late into the 20th century. They thought they were crazy. Uh, and you know their scientists were still coming up with some pretty good uh, material. And somehow, you know, Louis Pasteur invented, you know, modern uh, immunology. So yeah, I think we can have innovation without uh, knowledge monopolies. I don't think that's a question. You write about Gates' dedication to monopoly medicine surviving the pandemic, even before he and his foundation's officers began to say so publicly. Is it possible to break up monopoly medicine so we do not have? this slow response after the next inevitable outbreak or a virus that becomes pandemic. Can antitrust laws here in the United States break up monopoly medicine or is monopoly medicine protected now by the World Trade Organization? Yeah, I mean, those are two uh, two different levels you'd, you'd have to deal with. Um, in the U.S. context, <clears throat> absolutely, uh, they can be broken up. They're, these are politically um, constructed things and they can be deconstructed. We have um, public interest triggers written into patent law. Um, there's, you know, three or four different laws between patent code uh, and between, you know, legislation that, that funds basic research through the NIH that allow the U.S. to come in and basically take IP in, in the public interest. It's just not used. Um, By Dole, which was the sort of uh, landmark law in, in 1980 that formed a conveyor belt of government science into the into the private sector it has very clear public interest march in language not been used once the glass is pristine on that um, so yeah it's a question of political will and uh, in the WTO same thing um, you know trips is a council within the WTO and uh, it doesn't have to be. And within that council right now, you have a very serious challenge to all of the, um, the IP laws that it usually enforces. They're not even asking to get rid of it forever. What, what the challenge is to the um, TRIPS regime taking place now is just for the duration of the pandemic. And the companies and uh, allied governments, including our own so far, are refusing even that. There, you know, because of the example it might set. And I think that's important to keep in mind is, is one of the reasons why Gates and industry uh, is so against lifting um, IP rights for a short period um, or having a moratorium is because of the example it sets. And once people realize, wait a second, if we can do this now, why why can't we do this all the time? And then it just starts to all, lead to all sorts of uncomfortable questions and an unraveling potentially, and, and they're terrified of that above all else. So what happens to Bill Gates' wealth if intellectual property rights no longer exist? Is, does he have a conflict of interest here where that is what his wealth is based upon? He's not going to end up in a homeless shelter no matter what. Um, I don't think this is a question of his personal wealth at all. Um, to go back to your question about what's motivating him on this, I do think it's in his sort of DNA. I think it's one of his, you know, earliest. Um, it's kind of in the sort of Bill Gates movie that may be made one day, like the Rosebud in that movie will be some sort of like homespun 
wisdom that his dad told him about the free market and the importance of, you know, something like that. Like since he was a little kid, a little prep school kid, he's been raging against the open source anarchists when he when he was tinkering with with his first software program. He hated the hippies hated them. He was publishing these letters against the hobbyists. I mean, that's like who he is from day one. Um, and what's really going on there psychologically, who knows, but I do not doubt that commitment is sincere. And for him to come around to accepting that it's a disaster and that it's maybe attention that he's devoted his life to solving these problems while also reinforcing the system that creates these problems I don't think he's ready to do that because his head might explode. Um, and, you know, beyond that, like, I don't really care what's going on inside Bill Gates' head because this is a political problem that needs to be solved politically. And that is a question of mobilizing a whole lot of people into a whole lot of, um, you know, grassroots energy like we saw in the late 90s around the African AIDS crisis, which was very effective and moved the chains on this conversation farther than it's ever been moved. Um, we need to get back to that mentality and have a very clear understanding as we do that, the role of philanthropy and Bill Gates in particular. It's just stunning that somebody who has like daddy issues is causing uh, people to die right now and causing inequality all over the world. How does some one person get that kind of power? How does Bill Gates get the power to change the entire way that the vaccine is going to be created and distributed uh, to the entire world? How does he how does he have that say so over everything? Well, I mean, the source of his power is, of course, extremely ruthless, anti-competitive practices um, in the 80s and 90s, and also the adoption of the WTO regime, which enforced, um, you know, Microsoft's monopoly around the world. So that's obviously where it comes from. That's the basis of his billions. And then once he had the billions, he started to spread it around. Um, and he bought a lot of goodwill, he bought a lot of media time. Um, and he also did some things that in concrete terms are undeniably good. I mean, his malaria work, for example, in absolute terms is a good contribution to the world. But if you stop there, um, you know, that's, that's where the problem begins. And he has effectively deployed his wealth to make sure that people stop there. And he's effectively obfuscated the larger system role that he plays by getting everyone to focus on, you know, X number of vaccines being deployed, um, you know, X number of this going to that country, this number of discounts, you know, all of these sort of edge softening initiatives that he's done, which if you just stop with them, you can say, okay, the world is slightly better because of these things. But if you want to get past the mountain of this system failure, you're going to have to be a little bit more rigorous in how you look at what he does and why he does it. So what would you say to somebody who suggests that the fact that the vaccine is out relatively quickly, the fact that so many people have become vaccinated uh, is all because Bill Gates was right about intellectual property rights? Well, so many people have not been vaccinated. Most of the world has not been vaccinated and will not be vaccinated for another three years, four years, potentially. So it's been a complete failure. His idea that you could manage production and distribution through this buyer's club that leaves, leaves the companies with the power and the IP has been a complete 100 uh, percent, you know, undebatable failure. Um, and, and the actual development of the vaccines had nothing to do 
really with the private sector that he's left in control. I mean, there was a piece in The Guardian uh, just today about the AstraZeneca vaccine, 97% public funds behind that research. The, the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccines are really NIH vaccines. It drives me crazy when people say, oh, I got the Moderna shot. No, you got the NIAID shot. <laughs> uh, you know, that's where they come from. That's who invented these things. They're, they're public sector uh, products. So what happened with the situation with the Jenner Institute and Oxford University? They made a vaccine and then they said they were going to release that at a very low cost to low and middle income countries. Why, why didn't that happen? Yeah, Adrian Hill, the guy who directs the, um, the, the Jenner Institute, was trying to be faithful to the history of, of Oxford uh, research, which is where they developed penicillin, you may remember, during World War II. Uh, which was produced and manufactured um, on a non-patent basis during the war. It was later patented after the war. But during the war, it was uh, manufactured on a contract basis by a bunch of companies who, again, made a ton of profit. That's actually where Pfizer comes from. They made their first real bones manufacturing penicillin during the war for the government. Um, but, but yeah, that was Oxford, and they just kind of gave it to the world. And he thought... Hill thought, why don't we do the same thing with COVID? It makes as much sense. We're in a World War II style global emergency. Um, and the Gates Foundation basically said, no, 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 no. That's not how we do this. We're giving you money. And we think you should partner with one of the, the big guys. And as it happens, the, the people that they partnered with, AstraZeneca, is one of the worst. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole separate show. But like they're one of the worst offenders when it comes to patent extensions and all sorts of betrayals of the patent bargain that are supposed to be how it works. Um, it's just an awful company. But um, where was I? Yeah. So he intervened. And, you know, the smoking gun hasn't um, surfaced yet. It's probably out there somewhere. I'd love to see it if anyone wants to get in touch with me. Um, but. Yeah, it's 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 well known and acknowledged that Gates or his people, his officers, maybe uh, Richard Wilder, his his general counsel at CEPI, who's been very active on this front, um, doing a lot of those private meetings, um, basically put the kibosh on it. And you point out that uh, there's been this kind of confrontation over the WTO and trade related aspects of Intellectual Property Rights Council, where it seems to be that the, you know, the former imperial powers are on one side and the former colonies are on the other side. 134 countries very upset about the fact that intellectual property rights are still being protected during the pandemic. How long will the global south tolerate global north control over intellectual property rights and thus having unequal access to things like vaccinations during pandemics? And is there anything they can do about it if they fail at the WTO? Well, one of the conversations that's coming out of this right now uh, in the South is about ramping up local, regional um, production capacity. And it's not just in the South, it's happening all over the world. Um, people realizing, well, maybe over the last 30 years, we shouldn't have completely destroyed our public sectors um, with vaccines and, 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 and pharmaceuticals generally, which was basically kind of a reflection of general neoliberal trends. Um, but yeah, there is a conversation in the South about being more self-sufficient and being in a position to um, produce things for themselves. Now, with vaccines, it's a little tricky because often it's not as simple as um, reverse engineering the 
the formula, which is, you know, something you can do with, with more basic um, drugs and medicines. But with vaccines, you often need the active tech transfer assistance of the so-called originator countries. And that is something that has not been written into the contracts that have come out of um, COVAX or these, um, these uh, state industry contracts that you saw, for example, in Operation Warp Speed. And there were people screaming for those contracts to include mandatory tech transfer at the time. Um, didn't happen. There were people saying, okay, that didn't happen. Let's have voluntary tech transfer through CTAP. Second best option. Didn't happen. And now you're having the the reality of this disaster um, that's unavoidable. So Gates is now sort of tiptoeing into the tech transfer issue. He just had a meeting with with industry at a virtual meeting organized by the Chatham House in London on this issue. And uh, it was basically him uh, and, you know, his organizations and industry. Tedros, the director general of the WHO, didn't even show up just to show you how much (laughs) the WHO has been sidelined. So who, you know, at one point uh, you point out that on May 29th, 2020, Donald Trump announced U.S. withdrawal from the World Health Organization. This was in response, he said, to China's total control of the agency. The drug industry, meanwhile, was displeased with the World Health Organization for entirely different reasons. The same day, the World Health Organization director general had unveiled the CTAP with a solidarity call to action for governments and companies to share all intellectual property related to COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. So who had more control over the World Health Organization when Trump left uh, the... Oh, did I lose him again? Yeah, we lost Jeez. Uh, it's actually might be on us. Really? Uh, yeah, give me one sec. Let's try it. Alexander, are you there? I'm here. Oh, sweet. So who had more control over the World Health Organization? One, Trump left the organization because he believed it was controlled by China. Was it China or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Oh, I don't think there's any question that the Gates Foundation is the biggest, you know, single influence at, at the World Health Organization. Um, he's the biggest funder and he, you know, has the most uh, people on the payroll, quite frankly, um, sort of moving in and out uh, into the agencies and moving around between his organizations and, and other UN agencies. I mean, everyone kind of goes through Gates at, at one point in their career um, and you know, it's one thing you, you get a sense of when you talk to medicines access advocates who've been observing the the um, the organization for a long time is just the extent of their reach um, that you know they have by virtue of, of of their resources. How much of the concept of open source? Because it seems like this is the way that Bill Gates views it. He sees it as kind of a a threat to capitalism. How much does the global economy depend upon intellectual property rights and keeping any ideas of open source, any any kind of those ideas in check? Uh, I mean, there's sectors of the economy who are, you know, dependent on it for the size of, of you know, their bottom line. And, and pharmaceuticals is by far and away number one. They have the the thickest profit margin of any industry on earth. Um, and, and clearly that is a result of they're all monopoly profits. Um, they could still be profitable without monopolies and they used to be profitable, um, when they were just making medicine, you know, you can make things and, and sell them at a profit without, um, making billions and billions of dollars, which by the way, is not being plowed back into R and D for the most part, but is going into marketing and, and things like stock buybacks increasingly. Um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a source of of wealth and power for for some industries. Entertainment, software, and, and pharmaceuticals are still sort of in the lead uh, in bio, um, and they're the ones who wrote these rules. Again, not all that long ago, a quarter century ago, um, and uh, you know, reckoning with that fact is kind of the starting line for for this conversation. And you write of Gates' plan, the biggest and most consequential aim, as you were just pointing out, COVAX, proposed to subsidize vaccine deals with poor countries through donations by and sales to richer ones. The goal was always limited. It aimed to provide vaccines for up to 20% of the population in low to middle income uh, countries. So why does this this process that Gates seems to have of just paying lip service to the low and middle income countries, why does that lip service work? Well, I mean, if you, if you assume that the world can't possibly be any better than it is, and the system we have is the best of all possible worlds, then again, in absolute terms, any contribution uh, that's above zero uh, is to be lauded and celebrated. Um, you know, if if you live in a country that's going to have zero vaccines and a COVAX plane shows up with 10 million vaccines, even though it's going to, you know, take care of 0.01% of your population, uh, I guess that's a good thing, especially if you're, you know, a frontline nurse or in the royal family. But, you know, if you step back and say, okay, what would have happened if we had taken scale up seriously a year ago and done everything possible to make sure every factory that could be making vaccines was making them, instead of 40 million, it might be a much, much higher number. So taking the contribution in absolute terms versus looking at uh, larger system effects is really the, the choice here. And it's one that the media has just failed on again and again and again. We were talking about colonialism when it comes to intellectual property rights. You also point out that during the uh, HIV era in, in Africa, you write that since they could not be, uh, the pharmaceuticals argued about people in South Africa, since they could not be relied on to take their med- medicines on a schedule, giving Africans access to the drugs would allow for the emergence of drug-resistant HIV variants, according to industry and its government and media allies. Our defenses of patents rooted not only in colonialism, but in stereotypes of the political South. Our patents and their thinking grounded in not only racism, colonialism, but white supremacy and privilege. That argument certainly was, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, the, the systems of power that they represent, yes. Um, but, you know, in terms, I don't think there's anything inherently racist about um, a patent. It's, they're just not um, a good idea when it comes to, uh, to medicines from, from a, equity, justice, or, or R&D perspective. Um, but that, that argument that was used um, at that time, it's shocking in retrospect um, to think how widespread that was. After the article came out, someone sent me a link to a, uh, a West Wing episode, um, a show that I never watched, but apparently is, is quite horrible and is responsible for a lot of the bad things in the world. <laughs> um, And uh, they repeat that argument with this somber tone, like it was a conversation stopper, you know, like it was just settled the matter, um, which was surprising to me. But when you go back and look at that time, you have not just industry and and high level government officials making that case, but also people in the media. And I mentioned Andrew Sullivan, who was making that case repeatedly uh, in his blog in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it turned out that he was accepting funding under the table from pharma the whole time. 
And then when he got caught, he basically said, I have nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong with this. Um, and the fact that New York, Mag I know this is a little bit of a, a diversion here, but the fact that New York Magazine hired him after that happened and it was well known is just, you know, tells you everything you need to know. Um, and the fact that people still take that guy seriously is just, uh, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, <laughs> neither do I. So uh, I think I was having that conversation with Alex Coburn like 20 years ago. The uh, you, you point out the artificial shortage of vaccines is primarily caused by the inappropriate use of intellectual property rights. So I just want to make sure that people understand this. How is there an artificial shortage of vaccines right now? And is that shortage intentional? I don't think anyone would want there to be less vaccines, although you could make an argument that less vaccines results in a higher price and controlling the market involves um, involves a, a shortage aspect. Yes. Um, so from the point of view of industry, um, it, there's a there's a relationship between supply and price. Uh, you can't you know, it's just basic capitalism. They want to talk about capitalism. Let's talk about capitalism. There you go. Um, and, you know, would supply be better? Uh, would the supply crisis be uh, less serious if we had taken production more seriously at the beginning and not let IP slow it down? Absolutely. There were lots of people saying, hey, over here, like in places like Bangladesh. Um, no, this goes back to your racism question. You, you know what, Chuck? Uh, I think that actually deserves more attention. Places like Bangladesh. Uh, said, we can make this stuff. We, we can do one of these vaccines that are ready to come online. And Gates and uh, a lot of governments were like, eh, well, you know, maybe you can't do it up to snuff. This is really complicated stuff. Um, so there, there was a certain amount of um, condescension that was sort of dripping with, I think, um, you know, racism or, or northern northern superiority there that, that came into play. Absolutely. And is still coming into play. They're still using this very condescending language about how complicated these vaccines are to make and how everything has to be up to Western standards and up to snuff. But, you know, the, the generics industry in the South um, actually makes those same product lines make a lot of the name brand drugs that we buy. So that argument has always been a little bit disingenuous. They use the same factories. They just put it in different bottles and it's good enough for them to sell at the monopoly prices. But then when it challenges their interests, they say, oh, wait, we, you don't want anything from these factories. So that's something that people should keep in mind. But yeah, absolutely. The supply crisis would not be as bad as it is had IP not been allowed to slow down ramp and scale up a year ago. I mean, we lost a crucial year because of this. So whatever happens down the line, we lost the crucial year. And that is something that we're going to have to um, come to terms with. One last question for you. We've been speaking with freelance journalist Alexander Zajic, who wrote the New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Alexander's upcoming book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, from aspirin to COVID-19 will be published next year in 2022. One last question for you, Alexander, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. <laughs> did, did your writing or research have any impact on your decision to get the vaccine or not? No. Why not? No. Because I'm freaked. I'm getting. I'm getting my second Pfizer dose today, and I'm freaking out because you know Pfizer, as you're pointing out, they led the WTO charge for intellectual property rights. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting there waiting for a Pfizer shot. It's kind of freaking <laughs> me out. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just don't think of it as the Pfizer vaccine. Think of it as the NIH vaccine. I had the Moderna shot and it really laid me out the second one. Um, but I just think of it as the NIH vaccine and um, use that as uh, inspiration to keep uh, keep writing about this subject and get people to understand that this, the public sector is really the hero here. Well, I hope so. And they are, actually. Uh, so thank you very much, Alexander, for being on our show. This really is fantastic writing. Everybody should check out this article because we only skimmed the surface of it. I had 55 questions written for Alexander, and I think we got to seven of them because the others were all follow-ups to what Alexander was saying because it was so fascinating. So please go check out Alexander's work, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines, and change your opinion about Bill Gates. Thank you very much for being on our show today, Alexander. It's a pleasure, Chuck. Thank you. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which we will be live streaming as we do every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast at the same place shortly after. On Patreon this week, uh, who the hell knows? I mean, the plan is to go home write tomorrow's monologue, or at least finish it, about my conflicted feelings over the getting the second dose of the COVID vaccine. Then go finish my vaccination regimen, go home, and see how true it is that the reaction to the second shot is far more intense than the reaction to the first dose. So what condition I am in tomorrow morning when we are actually doing the live stream of the Patreon podcast, I have no idea. After the first shot, I was giddy, kind of tripping, a feeling of being slightly out of my body, followed by arm pain and nausea and a complete inability to focus for a day and a half, so I have no freaking idea of what I will be actually be like during the Patreon podcast tomorrow. Tomorrow, Maybe I'll be barking like a dog, foaming at the mouth, or stammering like an idiot more than I usually do. Find out tomorrow when I will be attempting to tell you about my mixed feelings over the vaccine, a vaccine that will be traveling through my veins as I speak. Meanwhile, we're going back to 10 years ago this month, the salad days of April 2011, when we find our interview with Moshe Adler, author of Economics for the Rest of Us, debunking the science that makes life dismal. Moshe argues that economics is a science of and for the rich to keep them wealthy. They do so through their definition of what is efficient and the way in which they believe wages ought to be determined. Their definition of efficiency then justifies what are often cruel policies, while their ideas on wages leads to nothing more than theft. It's a lesson in how the so-called science of economics isn't a science at all, and as it is understood and implemented today, it always favors the rich over the poor, so it's no surprise we have rampant inequality and poverty is rarely addressed. But you can only hear me do whatever it is I will be doing less than 24 hours after becoming fully vaccinated against at least one strain of the virus and our interview with Moshe Adler on how economics is built to make the rich richer and the poor suffer by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast happening every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, patreon.com slash Podcast shortly after at the same place. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. This week, Jeff foils another dictatorship before it can start. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding? Uh, should I watch The Long Goodbye instead? Wait, I know that one. Who's in that? Jim Bouton. Oh, that's uh, kind of good. player. Yeah. I'll give that one a shot. Yeah. This week's, uh, he wrote uh, Ball Four. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that book when I was in middle school. Yeah. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time? Chris says, hindsight. Adam B says, boobs. John F says, the system isn't rigged. It serves the 1% perfectly. 
A version of my above answer was also my campaign slogan while running against insider trading Barbie, Kelly Loeffler, for U.S. Senate as the Georgia Green nominee, uh, Georgia Green Party nominee in 2020. That's from John F. All right. Neil C. says, hope means nothing without action. <laughs> what have you been right about this whole time? Flying Needle says, the sky is falling. Our friends Hypocrite Reader say, the Lincoln Project. <laughs> Jacob J. says, Hillary Clinton is actually Q from QAnon, and Pizzagate was an elaborate conspiracy to drive a restaurant out of business for messing up her order <laughs> when she was in graduate school. As usual with HRC, everything she got everything got a little out of hand, and she failed. But she knows how to hold a grudge. And then finally, Jacob H. says, confirmation bias. That is fantastic. <laughs> This week's question from hell again is What have you been right about this whole time? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer in ASAP. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Reluctant Dictatorship. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I'm always looking for the magic bullet, people. I'm always looking for the easy answer, the panacea, the talismanic formula, the miracle cure. For you, my people. For you, to ease the burdens with which the pharaohs of capital have saddled you. To end their herding of poor people into prisons and their control of the powerless and dissident with violence to end their destruction of community institutions, which they replace with franchises to channel what community resources might remain into the transnational pockets of the ruling class, to rescue the planet from being sucked dry of what it needs to sustain life by the vampires of endless economic growth. All the societal remedies being floated these days miss the mark. Getting rid of the filibuster is a band-aid, as are term limits and, and any of the other tweaks to so-called democracy. Getting rid of the Electoral College would be great, and not just because they don't have a football team, but it would still not be nearly enough to stop those who weaponize capitalism from bending elections to their desires. An intelligence test for public service might prevent a Donald Trump from rising to control, but there are plenty of people who could pass such a test and still be terrible leaders. Getting rid of capitalism sounds great, but the power vacuum risks being filled by some other type of cruel opportunist, and where it isn't so filled, the general <laughs> environment of cruel opportunism often forces otherwise beneficent leadership to adopt malignant policies in reaction to malignant pressures. Replacing all leadership with women is no answer because Margaret Thatcher. Replacing all leadership with the gender, ethnicity, or physically shaped people of your choice will not work because Margaret Thatcher. Mar Margaret Thatcher rooted for everyone, basically. We need a dictatorship of the fair, honest, wise, and kind. They are the only demographic guaranteed to rule with fairness, honesty, wisdom, and kindness. And dictatorship is the only way they'd have the power they'd need to enforce their fair, honest, wise, kind policies. I can already envision them abolishing the police and the prison system and replacing them with trained cadres of peacemakers, conflict resolvers, restorative justice practitioners. 
They could curtail property rights that allow land to be misused to satisfy reckless greed and shallow ambition. They could empower those slaving under the yoke of BS jobs and the BS owners and functionaries, private and public, they sustain. They could dictate policies that nurture the land, seas, rivers, and air rather than exhaust and poison them. They could end the vicious cycle of weapons manufacture, the arms trade, and war. And they would have the power to force people to comply with their fair, honest, wise, and kind edicts under threat of re-education, sequestration from the decent citizenry, or extermination. The problem seems to be, as I've explored this possibility so far, that fair, honest, wise, and kind people refuse to rule as a dictatorship. And I understand that dictatorship has gotten a bad reputation over the last five millennia, but let's not throw the baby of revolutionary change out with 5,000 years of dirty bathwater. Is that wise? I ask you, wise people, is it wise to throw out the baby of revolutionary change with 5,000 years of dirty bathwater? And is it kind to shave the human condition with anything other than Occam's razor? Is it kind to use the Rube Goldbergian jury-rigged chimeric jalopy of even a democratic socialist republic to shave the grotesque accumulation of hirsute growth upon the tender visage of a humanity crying out for rescue from certain doom? Is that kind? Is that a kindness? And is it fair? to allow the rapists of the planet to continue their violations while those who would behave with responsible humility are shafted? And is it honest to say there's any other way to save humanity from itself? No, fair, honest, wise, and kind people. In refusing to rule fairly, honestly, wisely, and kindly in an absolute fashion, in refusing to think outside the boxes of your own prejudice, indoctrinated by 5,000 years of propaganda, you are not being fair, honest, wise, or kind, which, of course, disqualifies you from ruling absolutely as fair, honest, wise, and kind absolute rulers. So, I guess you got lucky this time. But I don't, I don't begrudge you your luck, but I will say this. The oppression and persecution of the unlucky by the lucky has to stop. We must stop the fair, honest, wise, and kind people from tyrannizing us with their luck. For the good of the planet, we must stop the fair, honest, wise, and kind people from tyrannizing us. For the good of the future, we must stop the fair, honest, wise, and kind people from ruthlessly exercising their will. For the children, for the kittens, for those making cool needlepoint collages, puppets, and decorative pottery, we must stop the fair, honest, wise, and kind people from kicking and punching us with their iron boots and boxing gloves. Down with the tyranny of the fair, honest, wise, and kind. They're acting with the caprice and selfishness of dictators. We shall not let this bullying continue. By refusing their solemn duty to rule as a dictatorial junta, those among humanity who are fair, honest, wise, and kind are cruelly wielding a unilateral monolithic fiat. The dictatorship of the fair, honest, wise, and kind will not stand. Hoist with their own petard, as the bard of Stratford-upon-Avon used to say whenever someone's machinations backfired. Hoist with their own petard, he used to say, swilling his ale in the public house with Ben Johnson and the other bards at their bard meetings. He was chairman of the bards. Any way you look at it, despite our failure to enlist the help of the fair, honest, wise, and kind, 
we've at least managed to avoid being dictated to by them. A good solid day's work, my people. You have stood your ground. What you lost in a solution, you've gained by refusing to submit to it. All power to the people. Someday. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. <laughs> oh, Jeffy, what's new by you? What's new by me? Uh, well, I've got so, I've got a ton of writing jobs. Surprisingly, I went from nothing to something. Can you tell? And uh, and I'm a free man, as you know. Can you tell us about your court situation? I can now that it you know it's over. It's supposedly all erased. So, you know, I killed a cop. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and I got in trouble for that. Normally you can get away with that. And, uh, you know, it, it, he was a black cop. I was a white guy, so you'd think there wouldn't be a problem. But apparently it's a major ticket. <laughs> and uh, you got to go to court for it. And uh, made a deal where uh, I would plead guilty on the condition that I would have a year, you know, probation, probationary period where I would do 120 hours of community labor mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then I and not get in trouble with the law at all that entire year. And then I would come back and the whole thing would be expunged from my record and the case would be dismissed. And you will have repaid your debt to society. Right. And I will. Have, but unfortunately, uh, COVID-19 happened just as I was about to start my community labor and all the community labor was shut down. So for about nine months, I was not doing anything. And I had already waited three months because I had a job at the time, at, you know, just before the closure. And so the three months of that was working like more than full time. And uh, so I didn't really get to start. Your community community labor, to, to, uh, not community service, community labor. Right, right, right. And this is the difference. This is the horrible, horrible difference. I got community labor, which is like being a prison trustee. It's like I had to – one day I was – so they finally opened up in August of last year. And I went for my community labor to do graffiti removal and – I was so out of shape and it was a heat wave and I was so hot and fat that I almost passed out during the first hour of my community labor. And so they wouldn't let me do it anymore because there were all these COVID restrictions. And if I had any medical thing, they like sent me home, they wouldn't let me do it. Uh, and I didn't want it. You know, that, it was clear. I was just like too old and fat to do that. And uh, so then I got a job cleaning up garbage which i thought was going to be by this roadside you know the fun stuff yeah, yeah. where you walk around with a stick and an orange vest and yeah. you poke garbage no it was sweeping up the garbage collection center where the trucks come to dump all their garbage and it was like a it was like sweeping the desert and it was a pain in the uh, pain in the rear end whatever i'm yeah i'm trying to give alex a break from having to censor things now and uh um it was so, and it was really rigid. They treated me like I was a convict, and you know they're like watching you all the time, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you better work harder. You know this is a privilege. This is a privilege. So I was like, why didn't I just, why didn't I get community service? By the way, you know, like what? So 
I had to go in and request an extension anyway because obviously you I could. wasn't going to be able to make up 120 hours right in like a month in my, or two months three months and my court date was coming up so they gave me an extension I also requested that it be changed from community labor to community service which thank goodness the judge said okay and didn't double the time because it was easier than community labor so i had the same amount of hours doing community service which was sweeping up garbage <laughs> outside outside of a uh, a uh, closed down a theater um you know an, a drama theater right so and it, so it was it was actually more pleasant garbage and i got to do some gardening and some painting and some but it was all much much easier at my own pace and i i did some even did some writing for them and uh it was amazing and the last day the woman signed off and said great volunteer <laughs> you volunteered that was awesome i didn't know that was all volunteer work <laughs> All right. Yeah, basically it was slave free. <laughs> right, exactly. Quite a volunteer. Well, you know, what am I complaining about? I was a I was a, a theater slave. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from Landstone from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Yeah, well you've been right about this whole time. What have you been right about this whole time? Justin M says Hamilton shot first. <laughs> the Star Wars reference? Uh, Mary Ann M says animal agriculture will be the end of us and rightly so and via Twitter Korea oh Earl Powell Karina says never going back to normal <laughs> Red State Red says those damn squirrels have been stealing my nuts <laughs> A.T. Moore says Bill Gates really is a self-interested leech and no Netflix I don't care how his brain works <laughs> Netflix knows that uh, John C says jet fuel can't melt steel beams and B says, Bernie would have won. Hmm. Occult FTN says, being left. Bo Biden's healthcare memory says, capitalism. What have you been right about this whole time? Past guest Yannick Giovanni Marshall, check out his interview on our show, uh, says, America. What have you been right about this whole time? Korg.org says, the rich get richer, the poor get the pitcher. Sandwichman A says, the urgent necessity for a shorter working time. Via Chicago says, not that our electeds don't care about us, but that our positioning on the concern depth chart, trademark, is so low that it generally feels that way. The last 13 months have made that abundantly clear. What have you been right about this whole time? The wrong tree says, not one element of Russiagate was true. <laughs> Eatfart69, old pal, says, things are only going to get worse. Joel G says, lowering my expectations of what the U.S. government can do for us for the last 40 years. Fluffy Cat says... Pizza is a sandwich. Damn. <laughs> GL Break says it is morning. Ello says there's no going back to normal anytime soon. Grateful Carl hath declared says the Mayan apocalypse from 2020 or from 2012. Y'all just don't realize it already happened. <laughs> and finally, Frothy Markets <laughs> says everything. <laughs> oh, and then also just wanted to jump in here because somewhere in the comments, I'm not going to read all of them. Eatfar69 gives us an origin name for his. Uh, screen handle which i think we'd all like yeah my handle comes from a verbal exchange when some a-hole tried to run me off the road he was road raging hard i told him to eat my farts he got <laughs> even angrier so i made kissy faces and he turned white something about that shook him he let it go 
the answers I liked most for this week's question from hell. What have you been right about this whole time? I did like Jacob saying, Jacob J saying Hillary Clinton is actually Q from QAnon and Pizzagate was an elaborate conspiracy to drive a restaurant out of business for missing, messing up her order when she was in grad school. As usual with HRC, everything got a little out of hand and she failed. I liked Chris saying hindsight, Jacob H saying confirmation bias, Braden saying I'm going to regret this tomorrow. And everybody seemed to like Ronaldo saying that accordion music is sexy. Not and, everyone. <laughs> I had a lot, of, a lot of likes there. And a lot, lots of likes for uh, Pete saying, My neighbor's cat is the dumbest cat in the world. The only cat I have ever seen fall on its head. I know where I'm leaning towards. You got any that you really liked, Alex? I'm just glad Pete's alive so we can save him the shipping and uh, send it to him. <laughs> no, let's go with Jacob H. and confirmation bias. I That's love really that. As a, uh, What have you been right about this whole time? Jacob H. says confirmation bias. That is this week's winner. My answer to this week's question from Ella is since I first understood what capitalism is and what democracy is, I was always right that capitalism and democracy are not compatible and eventually one would win out over the other and you had to choose between having one or the other. And you cannot have both, and likely, we know which way that's going to end. So thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's was Sweet Potatoes. Thanks to this week's guests, including Julio Derrico, co-author of the Roar magazine article, Resisting Greece's Rapid Descent into Authoritarianism. And thanks to listener George for suggesting Julio. Also, thanks to historian Kevin Waite, author of West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. And thanks to yesterday's guest, political scholar Lalek Lili, who wrote the Noema magazine article, Apocalyptic Infrastructures. Thank you, listener Robert P., for suggesting we have Lale back on the show. And thanks to today's guest, Alexander Zajic, who wrote the article, How Bill Gates Imp- global access to COVID vaccines. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll be fully vaccinated and probably off my nut, but I will still deliver a monologue on all my doubts about the drugs they will inject in me shortly after today's show. And we'll be sharing an interview from 10 years ago, a conversation from exactly well, right around 10 years ago, I should say, with Moshe Adler about his book, Economics for the Rest of Us, Debunking the Science That Makes Life Dismal. That's our Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. Podcast shortly after the same place. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing. Today's show is Alexander Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>